We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and ask you to just bless this time and help us to see what you would want us to see from your word and give a safe trip back through the rain home tonight. And just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's David's psalm of thanksgiving and deliverance. Uh, last week we started the first four verses. I want to read those just to give us context. Uh, one thing, if you are studying, studying your Bible, Psalm, tw- uh, Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are virtual duplicates. Psalm 18. Uh, not completely, but very, very closely duplicated. So we're going to start at verse 1 in the reading. And David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hands of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I shall, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid, the sorrows of hell compassed about me, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God and he did hear my voice out of his temple and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled and the foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon the cherubim and did fly. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness pavilions around, uh, round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from the heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightnings and discomforted them. And the channels of the sea appeared and the foundations of the world were dissolved and the re- at the rebuking of the Lord and the blast of his breath of his nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me out of my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. And I'm going to stop there because that ended a sentence. (laughs) So this is a very powerful uh, praise that David is making. Uh, this is going back, and as I said, if you read Psalm 18, you see virtually the same words in that one. Uh, so when we back in the, three years ago when we covered Psalm 18, you, you already heard most of this. So, uh, But we look at here, and it says, and we went through verse 4, so we're going to start at verse 5. When the waves of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid, the sorrows of hell compassed about me and the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried unto my God, and he did hear my voice out of the temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. This is a picture of David in in great distress. Uh, You know, he says, the waves of death, the breakers, literally the breakers of death, were all around him. And I don't know if anybody's been near oceans and everything where you can get around and see all the waves and and the breakers, and it's, if you go out on a point, you can actually hear them all around you. Or if you're out at sea, <laughs> you can really get, 
get this, and this is the picture that David's talking about. He's talking about a storm. Storm, and he's saying, you know, this is the waves of death. And we know about his history. Saul's chasing him all over, all over Israel. Uh, if, it wasn't for Saul, if it wasn't Saul, it was somebody else chasing him. Um, and he, he lived not just in a place where he felt like he was going to possibly die. He had people literally seeking his life every, everywhere he, where he went. And he says, I'm compassed about. Everywhere around me is this idea of death. And it says, floods of ungodly men have made, made me afraid and literally overwhelmed him. Okay, And we, we do know, we know that Saul's chasing him. Uh, Saul's generals are chasing him. You know, Saul brings whole armies out to get him. And if he's not fighting Saul, he's, he's out fighting the uh, Philistines or the, or the Amalekites. He's busy, he's busy fighting for Israel, even though Saul's not, not uh, treating him well. He's still fighting for Israel. And we see all of this, and he says, I've got all these people out to get me. You know. And many times we might feel like people are out to get us. Uh, and in, especially in America, we don't have, you know, we, we never have anybody really trying to kill us usually. We may have people out to, out to make life miserable for us. But David literally had people trying to kill him. And that made his life miserable on top of it because every time he got settled in, he'd have to run and, and hide and cause problems. And he's saying all of this happened... He goes, the sorrows of hell comes to me, and death prevented me. So he's going, the sorrows of hell passed you know, round about him, and death prevented him or confronted him. All right? Death is confronting him every time he turns around. And the good news for David is, in verse 7, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God. And then he didn't stop there. He didn't just stop and say, I cried unto God. He says, and he heard me. This is something that we really need to put into our hearts. When we cry out to God, he hears. And then his, hear, his hearing actually motivates him to move. And this is something that's very important. Too many times we as Christians forget to call to God. We go, somehow I think I can handle this and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to fight and I'm going to, I'm going to make something happen out of this. And anytime we start, and I've said this over and over, anytime we start putting I in the middle of what we're thinking, we're in trouble. Uh, God, I can handle this. I don't need you. God, I can, I can do this. You know, I, I can handle this problem. It's a small problem. I can handle this one. You know, we're in trouble. We're in trouble when the eye gets in there. We need to go quickly to God and say, God, help me. And so many times we don't, we don't want to, and a lot of it is the pride that we have in our own hearts. All of us have a pride in our heart. You know, what can I do? I, can, I don't have to call for God. This is, this is too small to bother God for. And as I've said before, what problem of ours is going to be big to God? You know, you know, we have an earth shatter. I mean, literally, if we have an earth-shattering problem, the whole earth is literally going to blow, you know, be blown to bits. To God, that's still not a big problem. He created the whole thing in the first place, and he holds it together. So anything that we're going to experience is small to God. 
And the more we start to realize that, the easier it is for us to go to God and say, God, I need help. And we all do that. We all do it. I do it. You know, we all tend to want to try to do things ourselves. You know, God, I can handle this one. I don't, I don't need your, I don't need you. And this is where we come up with the saying, you know, I've tried everything else. I might as well pray. You know, I, okay, God, I, I've done everything I can. So I, I'm going to come to you and get, you know, ask for help. I think God really does appreciate it when we just say, God, I need your help. Now, he may then direct us on what to do. We may still have to be the one that fixes it, but it's him that gives us that direction. But in David's case, we look at him, and I don't think it was quite this much. I think David's using a lot of poetic language here on this one. But he's really talking about how God did the miraculous for him. Now, and think about all the times that God did the miraculous things for David. Saul has him surrounded and cornered, and how did God deliver him? He had the Philistines raise up on the, on the border to call Saul out. You know, uh, he's hiding in plain sight, and Saul doesn't see him. Goes into a cave where David and his whole army of 600 men are hiding, and Saul doesn't see him. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an interesting thing how God delivered David through so much of the things he went through. And in verse 8, it says... Then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of the heaven moved and shook before, because he was wroth. Now, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it talks about an earthquake <laughs> of this kind of magnitude, but I think David is really sensing the power of God in the movement. And you know, have you ever been in a place where you've really felt God moving and you can almost feel the power, literal power of God and kind of feel this whole idea everything's going to everything's going to get ready to shake eventually God is going to shake this world in his anger in the, in the tribulation period he's going to shake this world literally because in Revelation we're told there's such a strong earthquake that the mountains are leveled you know and that's a big earthquake you know, to move the tallest mountains down you know, now, God created them in the first place by starting all the motion of, of, the, of the plants, but he can, rip it, he can rip them down just as easily. He says, the foundation shook. There was smoke from his nostrils and fire out of his mouth, and coals were kindled by it. Pretty powerful language there, too. And you know, the other places we kind of think of, how often are we, do we read about God having a sword coming out of his mouth all right, from his words? And God's words can set things on fire. You know, God's words can, can burn the world. He has used fire to consume much of the world at various times. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned. Korah, during his rebellion, the earth came and swallowed him. You know, just opened up, swallowed Korah, Korah and his 250 rebellious leaders and dropped them straight into the pit of hell. You know, so God has used fire on many occasions. Now, maybe David had somebody that was actually, you know, burned from heaven, but I don't think so. I think he's just really, he is a poet. And people who are in poet, poetry and artistry, they tend to do a lot of uh, flamboyant language. <laughs> but God is moving, and David's recognizing the moving of God and how God has stepped in causing fires, causing, causing whatever it took to get him 
uh, taken care of. Then he gets this very poetic picture of God bowed the heavens and came down and darkness was under his feet. He rode the cherub and did fly. He was seen on the wings of the wind. I am wondering when I see some of these, this section here, is he talking about the tribulation period? And I think he is. He's praising God for his deliverance, but I think he's also prophesying here to a degree of the end times because the description is just so strong. All right. Uh, during the tribulation, fire, fire is going to come down. There's the two witnesses in, that God puts into the temple will call down fire to protect themselves. And, and God is not going to let them die until he sets them die. And I think this is a picture of that. You know, he's praising God, but I think he's also prophesying here as he goes into this is what's going to happen. Fire literally is falling. You know, he's thinking symbolically the fire that stopped people coming out, the, the shaking of the power. But I think he's also prophesying here because I see too much of the end times in, the, in, this, in these verses. Uh, he rode the cherub and he did fly and was seen on the wings of the wind. And this is something interesting to me. Is he, you know, this is not a picture of anything that we see throughout the scripture except in, in Psalm 18 and this one, that God flies on the, on the cherub, that he like rides on the cherub. That's literally what it's saying. He's, he's riding on the cherub as if the cherub was a horse. Uh, number one, God's too big to ride on a cherub because he's bigger than they are. But, you know, this is kind of an interesting picture of God being master and riding above all things out there. Cherubs are angels. Could be Jesus riding on the heavens. Uh, thinking of Jesus, but be, I, I've never seen any scripture where Jesus is going to fly on a cherub, but this could be it. So we see this picture of God writing. Now we do know in, Saul, in, in Revelation that there will be an angel that f goes around, and around the globe flying and pr pronouncing the gospel. So the, the gospel message is going to be spoken even though Satan is in charge. There will be an angel speaking, you know, shouting out the gospel message. Uh, but here we see them say, God will fly through the heavens. And uh, it's kind of an interesting point. I've, I don't know if he's being poetic here or, you know, talking about his power on it or, you know, what this one is all about. Uh, when it comes to these poetic words, I'm not a poetic person, so it's hard for me sometimes to understand what he says. But here we see this. He goes, he made darkness pavilions around him and dark waters and dark clouds of the skies through the brightness before him were, though the brightness around before him were coals of fire kindled. And in this case, he's literally saying darkness, God just camps in it. You know, because darkness is something that usually brings fear, trembling, especially deep darkness. And he says, God just sets it up as a tent around him and <laughs> dwells in it, has no problem with it. And he goes, and even then he's got coals of fire ahead of him. You know, so this is kind of an interesting thing because darkness is associated with hell as well. Okay, Hell is a place of fire, but the fire does not produce light. So hell is a dark place burning with fire, burning with conscience, and full of pain. And yet David here is saying that God, darkness is no big deal to God. 
He just, he just sits out of his tents and, and dwells amongst it, <laughs> has no problem with it. It's a very interesting picture. That God is in the darkness. That God is in the darkness. He's in the light. He, well, he is light, but he, can, he, he encompasses the darkness as well. Because when we're in the dark places, he's there. He's there. Yeah. And then David in another verse said, though I descend into hell, you are there. You know, if I go to, where can I hide from God? I go, to, I go to the heights of heaven, you are there. I go to the lowest hell, you are there. I go to the, go to the light, you're there. When I go to the dark, you're there. God is everywhere. Now, in hell, he's not a comfort. But if we're in a place of darkness, he's with us and he's our comfort. And he brings us light. Because he is our strong tower. He is our fortress. He is our buckler. So even when we are in the darkest places in our life, he is with us. And the thing we need to do is be able to recognize that God is there. Because sometimes we're focused on the darkness. We're not focused on God. Most of the time we're focused on the darkness and not on God. You know, when things seem to be going bad on me, I oftentimes will focus on the bad instead of, God, you're in charge. But the more we train ourselves to think with God and stay focused on God, the easier those times are. You get attacked when you're start headed for a dark place all of a sudden. Don't just go ahead. It'd be dark because you're not getting out. Yeah, you're not you're you're not going to be able to get out of it, and God's abandoned you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, and uh, you know you wouldn't be in this much pain or this much situation if God if God really cared for you. And and there's all these attacks that come upon us, which is why we really need to renew our minds with the washing of the word as it tells us in in, Rev, in Romans 12. You know. Is that too God's trying to strengthen us more when we're in those times? He's, he's using them to test our faith to see if we're going to trust him. And again, the more we train our minds to focus on God, the easier it is to get through those problems. When darkness comes and we remember he's our fortress, the fortress will have lights in it. So we're in the midst of darkness with a, dwelling in the light because we're inside the fortress. Now, and this is the key that is so important. And you'll notice usually I will say when things seem to be bad because I'm starting to really learn that God sees it as good and he's got a good purpose for it. So I'm trying to very much train my mind to say, okay, God, this doesn't seem very good, but I'm going to trust that you're in charge. And I'm getting better at it. It makes life a whole lot easier when, when you go through a hard time and say, God, you're, you're, you're doing something. And you stay focused. And we think about this in our lives, when we go through those hard times, when do we finally come out of it is when we start saying, God, I need you, I need your help, and I start turning my focus to God. And then everything changes. The whole way we look at it changes. But then sometimes when you're going through those really dark times, I think sometimes like, what did I deserve? What, what did I do to deserve it? Maybe I deserve whatever I'm going through. And that is a true starting point. God, did I, did I sin and am I reaping the consequences of my actions? But remember that the verse says, for all things work together for good. Even the things that I caused by my bad actions that are now consequences for my actions, God is going to use for good. 
All right? So I can't get depressed just because even if I'm suffering consequences for my, my actions, I can't get depressed and go, God, you just can't use this because he's going to use it for good. What that good is, I can't, can't always tell. So does that matter? I mean, I'm not mad or maybe I'm saying it wrong, but is that okay to think that way sometimes? I've said this over and over again. If I'm going through something, some kind of consequence of something bad, I will ask my, I will look at my life and say, okay, God, have I done something that deserves punishment? If I have, then I, then I confess, God, I am sorry, I, I, I have sinned, forgive me, and help me, help me get through this consequence, because he's going to give us the strength to go through that consequence. The verse that always uh, helps me in a time like this is Philippians 4, 6, which I use all the time. What is that one? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things prepare supplication, make your request known to God. He'll give you peace beyond understanding. Yeah. So it's important, yes, we may deserve what we're getting, but that still doesn't mean that God's not using it for good. All right? And the promise is still true. For all things work together for good. Even if I have caused <laughs> the problem that I'm having, that God is going to use for good. Okay? It's not most things. It's not some things. It's not only the things that God you know, God says is good. It's all things work together for good. And if, if the good is only that I learned my lesson and I've asked for forgiveness and I'm not going to do it again, then that is still the good that, I've, that, I've, that has come from it. But we need to be able to go, yes, my first step is, God, have I sinned? Do I, am I reaping the, benefit, you know, re reaping the consequences of my sin? If the answer to that is yes, I confess my sin, say, God, I'm sorry, you know, forgive me, Give me the strength to get through this consequence. If it's not, then God, what are you trying to teach me? And just be patiently waiting for what he's going to teach you. Because everything that seems to be bad has got one of two reasons. He's either, we're either reaping the consequences for our sin, which we go, we go to confession, or he's trying to teach us something. Or, and it may just be as simple of, are you going to have faith to hold on to me? Because Satan is trying to sift us. Because that was what Peter was told. You know, Jesus said, Satan has a desire to sift you. And you think about sifting. You know, that was not a very nice thing. That means shaking them all up, trying to, trying to run them through a, through, through a little grade. <laughs> okay? Exactly what he did to Job. Sifted Job. Taking everything away. Satan wants to do that to God's children. And, and God doesn't always let it happen, but he does let it happen sometimes. That he will say, okay, Satan, you can do this to, that, to that, my child. You can do this to my child. But he always has limits. And this is something that we're looking at. God dwells in the darkness. David understood darkness. You know, there were times when he was very deep in the darkness and feeling overwhelmed, and then he would find God in the midst of that darkness. And this is where we need to be looking for God in the midst of the darkness, because he is light. And his light penetrates the darkness. And usually that's where we finally get to, and we say, God, I need your help, and then all of a sudden we see the light, we go, we go hold, on to, hold on to God. <laughs> you know, go hide inside God, 
And I, and I love the fact that we are in Christ. We are in Christ if we're his children. The, the language in the Old Testament was mostly about being our fortress, being our shelter, being our buckler. Okay, very warlike terms. But each one of those was not the attacking format. It was hiding inside God. In the New Testament, it talks that we're in Christ. Put on Christ. You know, put on the whole armor of God. And I've already said many times, each piece of the armor is Christ. So we're encompassed and wrapped in him. And each thing about this is, our life as a Christian is real simple. We just stay with God. We let him do the battle. When Satan comes around knocking on our door, we just send Jesus to the door. And if we send Jesus to the door more often than, than go to it ourselves, we'll be better off. Uh, Jesus, I think it's for you. <laughs> you know, uh, you know the, the, per, the Satan at the, 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 at the door is not wanting Jesus. He wants us. But, you know, Jesus is for you. Go answer that door. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, my, my friend will do my talking for me. My, 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 my advocate will be the one talking to you. My lawyer is going to be the one talking to you, Satan. You go ahead and tell him whatever you want to tell, tell me. You know, and Jesus already defeated him. You know, and we need to really start understanding the power of God and his love for us. That he has a great love for us that sometimes we forget. Yes, we know that he loves us, but how often do we really forget about his love? Oh, he jumps on it and he helps us, he helps us forget. Yeah, right there telling you, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, the problem is, in facts, he can't love us because we are sinful. But the truth is he died for us and forgives us and loves us no matter what. And the problem is Satan keeps throwing facts at us. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You, you know, how, can, how can you think that God will love you when you, you know, look, look, at, look what you just did. Look, what you, look how you treated that person. Look, look what you, you know, how you didn't help this person. And he keeps throwing facts at us all the time. But truth will set us free. God died for us. And but God forgave you for those things you've been bringing up Or as we are in his point. <laughs> From his perspective, as we are. You know, and that's the good news. God is dealing with us in our glorified state, not the state, the state that we're in being sanctified. And that's hard for us to, we can't fathom that whole complex. And even as I say it, I'm going, God, I don't really, I know it's true, but I don't really fully understand how you're dealing with me now as I'm being made perfect, but you're dealing with me as if I was perfect because that's how you see me because you're already at the glorification point. You know, and it's, it's mind-boggling, but it is how God sees us. He's not seeing us as a work in progress. He is seeing us as a finished product. And that's the language of the New Testament, that he sees us finished. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. All of sin is paid for. All of it. 
He paid the price. The only thing now is what do we do with Jesus and now are we going to be in him or out of him? And that's going to be quite a, quite a thing that, that it comes down to. And he dwells in everything. And the more we realize that he's there with us and we don't listen to Satan, we start really living in truth. And how do we get into truth? We read our Bible. We get taught. You know, and we read our Bible. And we read our Bible. <laughs> and we read our Bible. And we change the way we're thinking. It's funny, the more I read, you know, if I take the hour in the morning and read, it's like the more I get attacked. Well, of course. <laughs> Satan doesn't like us changing our minds. In the books, uh, the Left Behind series, it, uh, when it gets to the glorious appearance, it talks about God at the White Throne Judgment talking to everybody personally at the same moment at the same time. And everybody, everybody hearing it, and he paints a picture of it that is just phenomenal. You know, but it really goes to that thing. In that particular case, everybody does hear because that's his purpose. They're literally, you know, and I think that's exactly what it'd be. The White Throne Judgment isn't going to be trillions of years long as he deals with each case individual. It'll be God dealing with every single person at the same moment because that's who he is. Which will also be what heaven is for us. He'll have a personal relationship with each and every one of us all the time at the same time. <laughs> you know, and only God can do that. Only God can do that. And you know, it's hard for us to even fathom this kind of kind of uh, situation. And it says, The Lord thundered from the heavens in verse 14, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and, lightning and discomforted them. So he's talking about how his enemies are scattered. And David's enemies were scattered on more than one occasion. But you know, I also again see the, the tribulation period, the last battle. All the world is gathered against Israel. And Jesus shows up and just speaks a word, and the battle's over. Now, I can't even imagine that. Just speaks a word, nope, the battle's over. They're all dead. Blood up to the horses' harnesses, it says. It's a lot of blood in the valley. A lot of death. And Jesus just instantly ends the battle. This is kind of an interesting thing. And then verse 16 says, The channels of the sea appear and the foundations of the world were dissolved and that the rebuking of the Lord and the blast of his nostrils. And here I definitely know he's talking about the, the very end. This is, David, David is definitely moved from starting on just praising God for him into full-fledged prophecy. The world will dissolve on the last part of our world at the end of the millennial kingdom, after Satan has been released and had one more big, big try to turn, turn humanity against God and try to win, God will destroy him, and then he'll destroy the entire world and the heavens and start all over with brand new heaven and earth that will not be defiled because it'll be made perfect with glorified people that will not, make, will not sin. That's hard. That, that is hard to imagine what a world will be like with no, no evil, no sin. No, no, bad, no bad at all in it. And uh, yet that is going to happen, that God is going to draw everything to an end. Just like the beginning and, and start all over again. 
a new, a new beginning for everything. And then putting us in our glorified bodies in places to rule a brand new perfect world. As we were supposed to have done from the very beginning before it was, before it was ruined. Yeah, before, yeah, well, it won't be, it won't be, a, won't be done again. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. When we think our enemies are too many, too strong, we need to turn to God. And again, I understand it's not easy to do sometimes. When we're afraid, it is hard to turn to God. And yet, in Peter, we're told, cast all our fears upon him, for he cares for us. All our fears. God is waiting for us to turn over anything that we're afraid of, no matter how big or insignificant that fear is. He says, cast it on him. And when we do that and we leave it there, he gives us a peace and I hope you all have under, had times when this has happened, when it, it just, when you look around you and it's all chaotic and you're at peace. And it's like, I shouldn't be at peace, but you are at peace because you're casting all your cares on God. And I've had this happen many times in my life where God, I just don't, you know, how can I be so peaceful with all of this going on around me or not even noticing that things are going around me until afterwards? You know, you get to the end and going, wow, there was a lot of, there was a lot of storms going on around me, and I didn't even notice them. You know, and this is the picture I love is the disciples out on the, out on the water, supposed to go to the other side, and Jesus is walking along as if he's going to pass by them because he said you're going to the other side. And he, so he's on his way over there, and they call him. And Peter says, if it's you, let me you know, come out of the boat. And he steps out, and when did he fall? When did he start sinking? When he noticed the storm, he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the storm. And then his mind was telling him, you can't walk on water. You can't, you're not even supposed to be, you're not even supposed to be out of the boat in this kind of weather. You know, and everything attacked him all of a sudden. You know, and Jesus reached out when he called for help. God is right there. Even when we do sink in the storm, even when we do get overwhelmed, God is right there when we call for help. And lifts us up. And this is the good thing. The more we concentrate on him, the more we get into the word, the more we think with God about his thoughts, the more we will be at peace. Because when bad things are happening to us or apparent bad things are happening to us, we go, God, it's for good. I'm going to just give me the peace until I see it, see why it's going to be good. God, you're, I, I'm really sick. Okay, God, what is it, what is it we're trying to learn? You know, I am amazed sometimes when I read the testimonies of people who have saved people in the hospital because they're just so much at peace because God is on their side and they know God's got a, got a purpose and people see it and end up getting saved. People get saved when they watch the strength of a Christian dying. Fox's Book of Mart Martyrs shows us that. How many people get motivated to follow God because a saint died with great grace? and peace. And I'm going, wow, there's something to what they said. You know, it is an amazing thing when we just rest in God, no matter, I mean, the best thing that can happen to us is we die and go to heaven. You know, the worst thing is we suffer and have to live a little longer. 
I've always thought about this. You know, when Jesus went to see Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died, it says he wept. And everybody looks at that and says, well, look, how, look how sad Jesus was when, because of Lazarus was dead. I really, truly think he was weeping because he knew what he was going to do to Lazarus. I'm bringing him back to this world when he is at peace in heaven. And I'm bringing him back so that Mary and Martha can feel comforted because they can't take comfort in the resurrection. And he, and he wept. Not because he, of Lazarus' death, but I really do believe he wept because of what he was bringing Lazarus back to. Lazarus is in heaven. He's, he's in a perfect place. I, I hope that God wiped the memory of heaven out of Lazarus' mind when he brought him back. Because that would be miserable. To remember what you were taken, pulled back from would be miserable. So I hope that he also wiped his mind of, of what he was, what he was, where he was. Uh, but we look at this and say, God, where is my focus? Where is my focus? Am I looking toward my reward? There are so many Christians that are so tied to this world that any time they are facing death, it panics them because they're going to lose what's center in their heart rather than God, you know, going home. And this is very important for us. Where is our thoughts? Are our thoughts on truth? When we die as a Christian, we go home. There should be nothing scary about going home. I mean, going home is a good thing. You know, we, we, if you go on a trip for a long trip and it's time to come home, you're usually looking forward to coming home. We have been on a very long trip as Christians. Anywhere from zero years to 120, 130 years or somewhere in between, we've been on a long trip and we get to go home at some point. Are we really looking forward to going home? Verse 19, they, the, the, the people that were too strong for him, they prevented or confronted him in the day of his calamity, but the Lord was my stay. This is the good news for us. No matter what is going and coming against us, trying to keep us from going forward, God is my stay, my st support. Literally the staff that they would be able to hold on to when you're tired and be able to protect you. God is my stay. If we could just grab hold of that one thought and hold on to that all the time, God, you're my, you're my support. I'm being overwhelmed by the waves, you're my support. I'm being attacked by many, many enemies, you're my support. It's the middle of the darkness, darkest place in my life, you're my support. If we can just hold on to the fact that God is our support, always, how much peace would we have? Unlimited? Because no matter what happens, God is my support. And I'm hiding in him. I'm protected by him. And, you know, it's this wonderful thing. In verse 20 it says, He brought me forth into a large place and he delivered me because he delighted in me. Do you really realize that God delights in you? You know, this is so important for us. 
I'm bringing this up because I know I brought this up when we did Psalm 18. It was the same thing. Because it struck me when we were doing Psalm 18. God delights in us. What an amazing thing. And this literally means his eyes light up. It's the picture of you seeing your spouse in those moments when you're deeply in love and your, your eyes just light up. You're seeing the love of your life. That's that word. God sees us. His eyes light up and said, this is the one that I love. Yeah. And this is an amazing thought. God delights in us. He wants to be with us. He wants us around him. And he knows us and still delights in us because he sees us as perfect. He sees us as washed in his blood, perfect and beautiful. And we don't necessarily see ourselves that way, but God sees us that way. There's a beautiful song that came out in the 70s. It's called Jesus Get Your Bride. And it's a picture that Jesus is just waiting for the Father to go tell him, today's your wedding day. Go get your bride. What do you do in Israel culture, right? They go, they go get their, yeah. Right. So Jesus, Jesus said, I'm, I've gone to prepare a place for you. He's gone to do what a husband is supposed to do. Go build the, the house for his bride. And, in some, and he's waiting to hear the day that the father says, go get your bride, today's the day. Where he then takes us home. He delights in us. He's, he's long, I can, I can just picture him longing. Hey dad, is it time to go yet? Is it time? The house is, the house is ready. The, the, the banquet is ready. Is it time to go get the bride? But the closer we draw to him, the more we see his righteousness, and the more we see his righteousness, the more we see how evil our, our actions are. And the strange thing is, as we get rid of all the things we think were bad, then God shows us that even what we thought was good is bad. And then when we get that taken care of, he shows us other things that we thought were okay, and he goes, nope, that's bad too, get it out. You know, and it just shows how wicked we are. Uh, but yet, with all of that, he delights in us. He delights in us and wants us. But he has pleasure in us. His eyes light up when he sees us. This is, this is quite a statement, and it gets overlooked by people. When I've never heard a pastor that I can remember <laughs> talk about that God delights in us. And there's another verse that caught my mind, and I don't remember where it was, but Jesus is called the darling of heaven. And we're his bride, the darling of heaven. You know, and this is the power of these words and how beautiful they are as, we, as he delights in us. He wants our presence with him. And he's looking forward to the day when he gets to be with us all the time, not just the Holy Spirit, because he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. But he's looking forward to the day when he gets bride to the, to the feast and the party that's prepared for him and us. That party in heaven is for us because we are the bride. It's for the groom and the bride sitting at the main table and everybody celebrating them. You know, 
this is what we have to look forward to when we get to heaven. Heaven is not a boring place. Heaven is a great celebration because Jesus has his bride and we get to see God. We get to see the one who paid the price for us. You want to talk about the ultimate dowry? He paid, he paid with his life to, to, to buy us to be his bride. It is crazy how much he loves us. It blows my mind that he would actually, knowing what was going to happen, he be born onto this earth to save us. Because he knew what was going to happen. What's even more amazing is he created us in the first place knowing what was going to happen. Yeah, but it does show the great love God has for us. And if we really start understanding his love for us, it will change the way we respond to him. It will change the way we respond to apparent bad things happening in our life. It will change everything about the way we react to everything because we're going to look and say, God, you love me. He loves us first. He loves us more. You know, you know, sometimes kids will play the game with mom and dad. You know, I love you. I love you more. I love, you know, you know. Uh, he, he wouldn't have to, we wouldn't even have a chance at that game. Because, you know, God, I really love you. I love you more. I died for you. Yeah. I might be, if, if, if I'm a martyr, I might be saying, well, I died for you. And he goes, well, I, I, I died for you before you were even a thought. But, you know, if we could just really focus in and really start living according to the truth that he delights in us, and he has made us beautiful in his sight. And start living by those truths. What changes would that have in our thought processes? What changes would that have in how we react to everything going on around us? When everything seems dark and we go, God, you love me. You, you, have, you have nothing but good in store for me. I just can't wait to see what you're going to do. Now, we don't always live in those truths. <laughs> But, how, what, but what if we did? What if we could get these truths so deep into our heart that nothing shakes us because we go, God, you love me. You delight in me. If we could really grab hold of that truth and hold on to it, it would change our world completely. It would also change the way we look at other people. When we look at other Christians, God, you delight in them too. They're perfect. I may not see it, but you say they're perfect. I'm going to treat them differently. How would it change the way we look at the lost world? He wants to take delight in them if they will just turn to him. What a difference it would make in all of our lives if we could just really grab hold of the truth that God delights in us and has nothing but good for us. You know, it's it said very lightly, you know, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And we say that very lightly as if, you know, because it's become a cliche. But it is also the most true statement that we could ever possibly grab hold of. God is good all the time. All the time. And if we could really start understanding and living that truth, what would shake us in this world? Nothing. Because we would just go, God... You're good. But even, even the truth of God is good, sometimes we don't, we don't always buy into that when things seem to be going bad for us. Yeah. You know, we will sometimes forget that God is good or somehow that he has become impotent. 
and allowed things that are out of his control. You know, and this is where, you know, when we did the Truth Project, the, the tagline on is that, do I really believe that what I believe is really real? That was what God is testing. God, do I believe you delight in me? The truth will come is when hard times come my way and I feel like I'm out of, out of fellowship and he doesn't love me. You know, do I really believe that he's good all the time will really be tested when bad things happen to me and I'm going, hmm, do I really believe that God is in full control? Do I really believe that God is good and will make this turn for good? And it's sometimes hard. Those, those trials will test, do I really believe? And the sad thing about it is for us is those trials just get harder. The more we pass, they just keep getting harder. But the same, the same process, do I truly believe? God, do I truly believe that you're going to work all things together for good? Once you start believing that, then some really interesting things can happen to you, and you're, you're going to go, yes, I still believe. Yes, I still believe. All right, God, don't understand any of this, but I still believe. But this other one, God delights in us. If we can really grab hold of that one and grab hold of that truth, God delights in us. Yeah. You were there. Yeah. But really, this, that idea literally is the whole idea of seeing somebody who's just so special to you that they light up your life just by showing up. What an impact we actually have on God with this word. He kind of lights up. Oh, this is my, this is my child. Uh, for the Father, this is my child. For Jesus, this is my bride. You know, for, for the Holy Spirit, this is my ward that I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for training. They all, because they're one, light up at our presence. You know, which actually should excite us. Really should excite us. God delights in us. And I, I, I struggle with this myself. God, you really delight in me? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I could picture it for the church. You know, God, you take delight in the church. Okay, I can understand that one. But you delight in me. The power of that statement is so strong if we really grab hold of it and understand it. And it'll change, it'll change everything about the way we look at God and his dealings with us when we can really realize he delights in us. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come in. Lord, teach us to revel in the fact that you delight in us. Help us to really grab hold of what that means. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.